This is the Moving Iron Podcast, the only podcast for ag equipment dealers by ag equipment dealers. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast number 10. On this episode, I'm joined with Tom Wall from Pape Machinery. Tom is the remarketing manager and has a very diverse crop mix with several different kinds of specialty crops and in turn generates a lot of different kinds of specialty harvesting equipment. Uh, Tom will be discussing his local market and the challenges that these machines present in his role as remarketing manager. Tom, thanks for being on my podcast. You bet, Casey. Glad to be here. So before we get started, I'd just like to get a little background on on who Tom Wall is and and you know kind of Pape Machinery's um, history. They've got a got a pretty rich history there of, of kind of of their niche. So um, give me a little background on yourself and and what who Pape Machinery is. Well, I'm. Uh... I'm a farm boy. I uh, grew up on a farm out in Perrydale, Oregon, which is uh, in the upper central Willamette Valley uh, here in western Oregon. Um, been in this business for literally, this was my 40th year. I came out uh, right out of high school, right into uh, the company, uh, Fisher Implement Company, which was the John Deere dealership prior to Pape Machinery. Uh, started out, as, honestly, as uh, a floor sweeper and a toilet cleaner. Uh, worked my way up through being a mechanic, truck driver, parts man, service manager, did a stint as parts manager. Um, so a lot of different hats over the years. Uh, and like I said, I've been in this business for 40 years. Uh, as far as Pape goes, Pape is relatively new into the, uh, to the ag business, Casey. Uh, I think this is their fifth year. If I do my math right, they have, uh, their history has been in with uh, construction equipment primarily. Started out as an Alice Chalmers uh, construction dealer way back when, uh, 75 years ago. That turned into a Caterpillar dealership. Uh, and then through those years, they become Heister, John Deere Construction Forestry, and they drop Caterpillar. And uh, uh, Kenworth Trucks. Um, Boy, uh, they're in a lot of different businesses, but Pape uh, Ag and Turf is just one of the divisions of, of Pape, the Pape Group. Yeah, Pape is a very diverse company. I mean, you look at their website and you go out and take a look at the footprint they have. Pretty much the majority of the uh, northwest part of the United States, they have they have something out there somewhere in some facets. So, um, very diverse company, and they have a which I guess, I guess in like times like this, you know, they can lean on other, other parts of their business to, to be, to kind of help them along. You bet. You bet. Now each business unit has to stand on its own. Um, so, you know, through these troubled economic times and the agricultural market, which we're all very much aware of, uh, it's, you know, it's been a struggle and it's been a struggle for everybody, but, uh, uh, you know, things are seemingly, uh, a turning around a little bit out here on the West coast because of what you had mentioned before our diverse product mix, uh, crop uh, demographic it it helps us not reliant on two and three crops so yeah that's uh that is that is such a, a huge a huge part of that whole business kind of out on the west coast all the way from southern california all the way north into uh up to the canadian border into washington and, and all the different diverse crops and and the diversity that's there so you know we've, we've talked a lot about auction markets and those kind of things over over the the previous uh, nine podcasts, you know, and and how, how's that auction market affecting what what's happening out in in your neck of the woods? I mean, are the on farm auctions picking up a little bit? You've seen more guys retiring, getting out, and, you, and that's kind of being more of a localized market feel. Or is the the larger online 
uh, live consignment auctions? Are those are those paint being having an effect on what you see happening in your market? Well, it's because it's so different out here. We really don't see the um, the farm auctions out here. Yeah, there's been some farmers that have retired, uh, you know, but nothing nothing any more significant than any other year. You know, I could go clear back into the 80s when we had the huge economic turn in the in the early 80s. Yes, we lost a lot of our local uh, small family farms, uh, disappeared, others got bigger. But through this downturn, uh, the biggest factor that auctions have taken place has been what's gone on back in your neck of the woods, Casey, back there in the Midwest. Uh, the, the drop in used equipment, um, Sale prices, uh, everybody shops the internet anymore, and things are a little bit more expensive out here on the West Coast, and it's created a bit of a challenge for us being able to be competitive with the dropping prices of uh, some of those trade-ins or lease returns that are going on back there in the Midwest. It's, it's been a, a little bit of a struggle. Yep. So, But it's, as far as the local auctions, we have our local consignment auctions, but we really don't see farm auctions out here and haven't for a number of years. Okay, so with all that, with with the farm economy the way it is, and what are the, some of the struggles and in, in, in with with the diversification that you have? I mean, I know for example, like um, grass seed is a big thing out there, and it's something like and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's something in the neighborhood of like eighty percent of the U.S. grass seeds grown in Oregon. Is that is that right? Something along those lines. Yeah, just here and just like uh, here in the Mid Willamette Valley, we are the world's largest producer of turf grass seeds, uh, ryegrass, fescues, orchard grasses. Uh, you know, you walk on your golf course. Uh, a lot of times, those will have Oregon turf grass seeds, uh, football fields, yeah. um, other crops. I mean, they a lot of those seeds come here just from Western Oregon. And that's a that's a pretty small footprint, though, as far as as far as what that is, as far as your AOR goes, right? I mean, it's not like a huge part of your overall AOR, it's a, it's a fairly small spot, correct? It is. Uh, you know, Pape is consists of 19 stores, uh, all the way from Northern central California, all the way up into Ponderay, Idaho, which is oh, about, I want to say about a hundred miles from the Canadian border. So, uh, and through that mix, we have, uh, up in Eastern Washington in the Palouse Hill country, uh, wheat and chickpeas or, uh, garbanzo beans, as a lot of people know them. Uh, and then coming down through Western Oregon, uh, this is where the most diverse crop area is. This is the, the turf grass seeds is a major player, but uh, wine grapes, uh, filberts or hazelnuts uh, are a, a huge and burgeoning market right there. Um, blueberries, caneberries, uh, you know, all kinds of different orchards. Uh, hay in our central Oregon area is a big crop, carrot seed. And then you get down into our uh, Southern Oregon, the Merrill, Klamath Falls area, they raise a lot of potatoes and uh, strawberries for the roots. Uh, we don't raise the strawberries. We raise the roots for the plants that raise the strawberries, and those go down into Southern California, Arizona, Mexico. So it's, it's, it creates, a, with this great diversification, it creates opportunities. If you have one crop that's not doing well, you know, luckily you have enough, hopefully another crop if the farmers are diversified enough that they can balance out their balance sheet at the end of the year and hopefully, you know, at least break even and most of the time hopefully put some money in their pockets. So, but as far as turf goes, it's actually a very small footprint in the, in our AOR that creates all this turf grass seed. Right. 
So, so when you're looking at, like, take your combine, for example, to cut to cut your grass seed, you probably have side hill kits, I'm, I'm guessing, just because of, of your location, and slow down kits, and, and, and all those different things that kind of go into those combines that add, you know, value to your local customer. But when you start expanding outside your AOR for that combine, there, there are there struggles with trying to move that stuff outside of, of your of your footprint. Yeah, there are. One number one, they're small grain machines. They're not corn and soybean machines. We don't we don't move any of those out this direction. So you know, um, one thing I will say though, it it does create a problem. People don't look at the West Coast as a place that they go purchasing equipment from. Uh, I've I, in fact I've heard the comment made that the West Coast is where equipment goes to die. You know, and so, <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> and you know that's that's kind of true. Uh, it's been a struggle to try to move our equipment back towards the east, where there's such a huge, I want to say, glut. Hopefully, that's getting better of of equipment. But um, so people don't really look out here for combines and tractors. Uh, and uh, as far as the other equipment goes, um, virtually not at all. So most of the stuff that we sell, if it sells out of our AOR, stays on this side of the Rocky Mountains. I got you. Because I know me and you, we've worked on a few deals back and forth together on a few, you know, some discs and mm-hmm. some cultivators and those kind of things that, that we've, uh, we've worked on in the past. But it, it seems like there's a uh, – you're not necessarily looking to uh, export the equipment out from your thing, but you, you are looking at maybe some of this lower-houred stuff. If, as long as the spec fits what you're looking for to bring it out to your neck of the woods, is that is that a fair statement? Yeah, you know, if, if Pape has kind of had this rule, if, if we don't have something in our inventory that will work for a customer, we will bring it in. You know, uh, we've resigned to the fact that everything costs more to get out here on the West Coast because of freight. And we just factor that into, you know, if we have to bring something in, uh, there's going to be a certain freight cost. And it seems like that that, the freight is the biggest issue. If we try to move a piece from the West Coast back to the Midwest, people don't want to pay that freight. But we resign the fact that we have to deal with it. It just doesn't go both ways. So it's real hard for us to move equipment any other direction but stay in our AOR or close proximity, like I say, on the on the west side of the Rocky Mountains. So on, on a typical combine, for example, or a, or a, even like a row crop tractor or something like that, what, what are typical hours in a year that you put on something like that? Well, that all depends on our region. Uh, let's take an 8,000 series tractor. Um, you know, our, our grass seeds, for the most part, are perennial. So let's take like a, you know, an 8370R. A typical farmer might put on, say, 400 hours a year, and that would be on the high side. Okay. And that's here, that's here in the Willamette Valley. Now, you get down into... The Merrill, uh, Southern Oregon, where they raise a lot of, of different crops down there, like I mentioned before, potatoes, uh, lots of hay, uh, strawberries for the roots. Those tractors fire up in March, and they really don't end until November. So it's not unheard of for them to get 900 to 1,000 hours on those machines a year uh, down there. So uh, up in the Palouse country and uh, eastern Washington, western Idaho, um, you know, row crop tractors really aren't used much. It's mostly uh, the four-wheel drive articulator to track machines up there. So lower-houred machines are kind of um, the norm for us, I guess, um, especially in the area where I'm from here in the mid-Willamette Valley. So those uh, 
those 400 hour machines do you have do you have a pretty good marketplace to push those up into uh the other place like for example where you had the 900 to 1000 hour machines like that pushing those machines up there is that a pretty common practice or, or are most of those guys trading those those machines off and, and and buying new you know that's the thing is because they put so few hours on them you don't see these big mud deals every year every other year uh people hang on to their equipment longer here and so it's only the larger farmers uh that will you know look at rolling every other year or every three years so for the most part if you sell an 8370r uh, to a farmer, um, they'll hang on to that thing for five or six years before they look about move, look to, to move it. When you get, you know, still the relatively low hours, you know, 2,500 to 3,000 hours, it's still a very good marketable machine that some of your, uh, secondary customers are going to look at very seriously. So for the specialty crops that like take blueberries, for example, are there more, are there bigger corporate style farm operations there where you have a bigger corporation running you know running the operation or is it more family-owned blueberry farms i guess that are selling to a a a larger consortium well you know starting out blueberries have have been pretty strong here for a number of years uh and it's always been the smaller family farms that have done strawberries and by and large that's still true now we've had some uh big investment firms and farms out of california move up here uh, and then have established, bought out other farmers and have established some, some very large blueberry operations up here. Um, and the names and the amount of acres that they run are escaping me right now. I apologize. But, uh, you know, it's not the usual, you know, 60, 80 acre type farms. We're talking, you know, five, 600 acres of, of blueberries roughly if I were to pull a number there. So um, those customers so far have kind of brought their own equipment with them uh and so we're making trying to make some inroads and trying to deal with some of those larger operations that are look like they're kind of making their direction uh heading up this way so are are, is is a blueberry harvest is that is there is that a labor intensive thing or is there actually a machine that that picks the blueberries. Yeah, there is. Um, you know, there's still a, a lot of the smaller farmers are still picking by hand, but there's a local company uh, out here in state in Oregon uh, that builds specialty blueberry harvesters and some others that are across the nation, uh, two or three other machines that are built. And the larger operations do run mechanical harvesting. You still have a lot of, you know, you pick type of things with blueberries and caneberries around here, but uh, more and more people are going to mechanical harvesting, especially as our labor uh, pool seems to be shrinking more and more every year. We have farmers that are struggling to find good farm labor, so they are mechanizing more and more. So when you look at all the the various brands of uh, specialty harvesting equipment that you have, you know, the, the closest thing that I've been to around as far as as far as specialty equipment goes is, you know, would be sugar beet harvesting. And, and you're looking at, that's very similar to what you'd see as far as potato harvesting goes. I mean, they have a digger and they have the various things out there. Then they have, you know, with ropas, for example, with the self-propelled, uh, defoliator and, and, and digger all together in one piece. So when you look at all these different, you know, crop diversification, how much of that stuff are you actually, specialty stuff are you actually selling, and how much of that is very niched, kind of localized stuff that's taking that's kind of taking place out there? 
Well, um, a lot of it is localized and niched. Um, when it comes to, like we were talking about blueberry harvesting, we're not involved in any kind of harvesting equipment at all. Uh, the, the company that I mentioned that's over in state and deals direct with the farmer, sales direct, so they're not looking for any kind of dealers. Um, one niche that we've gotten involved in in the last year, two years, is hazelnut harvesting. Um, a company out of uh, Italy called Monchero. We are the exclusive dealer here in the lower 48 states for that company. They make a self-propelled uh, hazelnut sweeper and harvester uh, all in one. Uh, very specialized machine. Uh, we're pretty excited about it and it's it's created a bit of a stir here in the Willamette Valley where traditionally you have a a separate sweeping unit that sweeps the, the nuts off the floor of the of the orchard, puts it into a windrow, and then you come back behind with a tractor and a harvester and a, and a cart, and you, you pick up the nuts, you, the dump cart dumps them into totes, and then you haul them to market. Uh, this particular machine will, will sweep, harvest, and dump it into a tote, excuse me, into a, into a bin, which you can... Uh, subsequently dump into totes or into a, a bank out wagon and then haul the harvest. And so it's it, it's kind of a double-edged sword, Casey. Um, you're, you're creating a machine that, or you're, you're selling a machine that eliminates a lot of equipment uh, and a lot of sales opportunities for other pieces, but it's also, uh, it's been good for us because the farmers are seeing the economy of this and we're the exclusive dealer. And so it's, it's creating quite a stir uh, within the hazelnut business here in the western U.S. In fact, we're getting calls from out of state for pecans and walnuts, uh, wanting to, uh, those customers to see this machine and work in their crops too. So it's it's exciting and it's uh, it's kind of scary at the same time because if this thing blows up, you know, look out. We're uh, we got to be ready for it when it happens. So, what percentage of, I mean, from a hazelnut? How how much hazelnuts are you are you growing out there? I mean, is is it a large percentage of the U.S. populate of the U.S. Uh, hazelnut crop, or is it is it just kind of just niche to? I mean, is it a, is it just niche to that area, and it just happens to be where you're at? Well, it it happens to be where we're at. Um, I I could have my numbers wrong here, but Turkey and Italy and France are also very large producers of hazelnuts. Oregon is the, the United States' largest producer of hazelnuts, and then they do raise some in New Zealand. Uh, what's interesting, though, is the quality of hazelnut that comes out of the Willamette Valley is, is far greater than what comes out of some of those other countries, and they're in very high demand. The Asian market has, uh, has embraced the Oregon hazelnut as the quality hazelnut, and it's funny, uh, the hazelnuts that are grown here, usually what I understand are not the ones that we eat, pick up at the store and eat. Those are ones that are imported from other countries because the market demand is so high in Asia. It's not very often that we're eating our local, local hazelnuts here in this area. So, uh, But as far as acres going in, it's thousands of acres every year that are coming out of some of our larger crops, uh, grass seed. There is some small grain here. Um, and more and more are going into hazelnuts because of the the quality and quite honestly right now it's the the price for hazelnuts is is very good the farmers are seeing the economics of it why would i spend all this time and money producing 
grass seed, which requires a lot of work. Uh, I can put in hazelnuts and in three years start producing a, a crop and, uh, you know, those orchards will last. We have orchards down in uh, west of Eugene up the McKenzie River that are well over 100 years old that are still well producing. So um, this is a crop that's going to be around for a lot of years and, and it's it's rapidly changing the demographic of, of crop mix that's here in the, in the Willamette Valley. Uh, you're seeing more and more orchards every year going in. So is does the Willamette Valley is that a very temperate climate? I mean, is it? I mean, with winter and all those different things, or is it? Or is it an area where the temperature doesn't really fluctuate from highs and lows? It's kind of a steady temperature year round, or, or why is it such it's, a pr- productive valley? Well, it's it's virtually an hour from the Pacific Ocean, uh, so you have the Pacific Ocean, the Coast Range Mountains, and then the Willamette Valley, and then the Cascade Range, and so. The weather, you have the Japanese current that comes up the, uh, the ocean along the Oregon coast, and it creates a temperate climate. You know, in the wintertime, we can get a week, maybe two, where the temperature really doesn't get above freezing, but it's, it's not very common that we get into the teens or even below that. Uh, most of the time through the winter, it's, it's a lot of moisture, moisture in the um, rain sort, and we get a lot of rain. Um, and then, uh, of course, we're blessed with that, that the, the snow dumps into the Cascade Range, and then we generally have a good flow of irrigation uh, through the summer months because of that. And so uh, summer months, uh, we might hit one or two or three days where it's triple digit. For, for the most part, we're you know, averaging probably about 85 degrees uh, through July and August with some variations in there. So... Um, as far as snow goes here in the Willamette Valley, very rarely do we get snow. Now, this last year we had an unusually uh, wet winter, wet snowy winter. We had several snow events. But for the most part, it's a very mild temperate climate. You don't get the extreme swings uh, like you see in other parts of the nation. So, and it's just the, the soil conditions are, are extremely fertile, uh, very good for growing a huge variety. In fact, they grow over 263 different crops here in the Willamette Valley alone. That's awesome. <clears throat> so what kind of struggles, I mean, so now you've, you're looking at all these different, I mean, I know being diverse, like you said earlier, there is some definite uh, benefits to that, but there's got to be some drawbacks to that as well. What, what are some of the big struggles you have with, with the diversification of your crop mix? Well, the, the diversification, quite frankly, um, is, is a struggle. Um, for the turf grass seed, I'll just start there, Casey. Um, there's no manufacturer that really builds, let me back that up. There are other manufacturers that build good uh, windrowers for cutting grass seed. Unfortunately, the, the manufacturer that I represent, um, they don't really build a good windrower for cutting grass seed. Uh, you, wanna, you want low shadow rate, obviously no conditioner like you would for hay. And so through the years, uh, going back to the old Fisher implement days, they started to develop this specialty uh, header based off the John Deere 995 uh, windrower platform that creates a cushion of air through the cutter bar, the rotary cutter bar, and lifts the crop up and lays it into a windrow that's very gentle. Now, um, that adds an additional over $30,000 of cost to the price of a windrow. Uh, and you start adding up all the numbers, you know, a W260 with the 995, what we call the legacy air platforms, $240,000. Uh, 
but that same machine will cut the same amount as three traditional auger or draper machines that we have out here. And it doesn't take a, an astute farmer very long to see, you know, hey, this is making me a ton of money or saving me a ton of money. Um, that machine basically isn't used anywhere else here in the Willamette Valley. So uh, where do we sell that machine once it's, you know, uh, the secondary farmers owned it? Um, that remains to be seen. <laughs> the other struggles that we have are up in our Palouse country in eastern Washington, western Idaho, extreme hillside country. They raise a lot of wheat up there. So the combines up in that area all have to have levelers on them. Um, and that adds with, with the tire package, the leveler, and the installation, that adds $100,000 to the price of a machine right off the bat. Where do we sell that machine after it's, you know, the second user has used it and um, the third, they're, you know, maybe the third user's used it. Where does that machine go? Honestly, we haven't found a market for that in the entire world. Um, still trying to locate a market that might be looking for that, but that's been a struggle. So that machine's born in that country, and at this point, it kind of dies in that country. It doesn't, that creates um, an inventory problem for us trying to move this equipment especially as the farmers get larger, uh, the smaller farmers are disappearing. So that second customer, third customer and beyond, it, it's disappearing. So what do we do with that machine? We've got to find some markets for that machine. And so those are the struggles that we see, Casey, primarily is just getting rid of this, this used equipment that we no longer have a market for. Do you foresee that, like take your combine situation that we were talking about, the... Uh the tires and in the hillside kits and in levelers and all those kind of things that you put on there. Um, do you foresee that maybe creating an issue where there's going to be an auction market that pops up out of that? And, and, and maybe the producer is going to start selling their stuff themselves via that and just taking whatever equity they have from that and, and coming back to you and getting something newer. Or it, you always see that being a trade cycle issue. Well, so far it's a trade cycle issue. Uh, we have run some of that equipment that was uh, aged through uh, company acquisitions when Pappy has, uh, got into the, the farming market. We had some an auction here recently, uh, and I say recently within the last two years, and it was a bloodbath. So um, it's not something that I don't foresee us doing in the near future. There's just we're going to have to be very careful about how we trade for this equipment, and quite frankly, it's going to take an education of our customer base to understand, uh, Mr. Customer, this machine is very expensive when you buy it, but the depreciation rate is also very, very quick on that piece of machinery because the market just isn't there. Unless we can discover somewhere in South America, you know, Europe, Asia, somewhere that that is looking for those type of machines. That we can export them to yeah that's uh <clears throat> that would be a struggle man because just you have so much just niched i mean it's a combine right but it's still very niche in what it does it's it's very niched and it's not like you can you can't really take that you can take that a uh, leveler kit off of the machine but it's cost prohibitive and it doesn't just transfer from, you know, a, say a 9770 with a leveler. You just can't unbolt that and put it onto an S670 or an S680. It just doesn't work that way. They're built specifically for specific models. So um, 
you know, we'd have to basically give the combine away and somebody would have to be willing to pull that equipment off of there if they didn't need it. Uh, you can't transport these machines down the road easily. They are enormous. It creates, they're, they're significantly wider and taller than a standard level land machine. So it's, uh, it's problematic uh, and, you know, and will be a little bit problematic until we can get some wheat prices, uh, commodity prices back up to where farmers are profitable again. Is is the width and height of the machine? Is that because of the tire package that you put on there, or is it is it something different? Well, it, it's it's both. It's the leveler kit that goes underneath the, the machine. It it bolts up underneath the machine, uh, and then of course the tire package is extremely wide, um, and then it also adds I want to say about three feet of height to the combine by the time they're done. So it's the, you walk up to that machine compared to level land machine, and it is enormous. So wow. pictures don't do it justice. If you go to our website, they don't do it justice. <laughs> right How large these machines are. Yeah. So you have, you have bigger, bigger, wider and taller shop doors than, than the most average. Than most page. people. Yeah. 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 In fact, we have some shops that we, we have to completely flatten out the levelers in order to even get them into our shop doors. Wow. Uh, we, we have some buildings that need to be updated. So <laughs> wow. yeah. Yeah. Well, so, so, uh, so when you're looking at the, uh, at the, at like the grassy bit of the business, is, is there like, uh, are each, is each farmer basically working and, and bagging their own grass seed or are they moving that to, is there like a, a centralized buyer that buys that and bags it all up? Well, there are, there are different grass seed companies all up and down this valley. Uh, I don't know the quantity and number that there are, but there's a lot of brokers and buyers that buy the seed. Your larger farmers generally will have their own cleaners and will bag and market their own seeds. Uh, the smaller farmers obviously are going through brokers and they will have, you know, uh, custom seed cleaners clean their seed and they'll store them in their, their buildings until the price is, uh, you know, where they feel like they can let it go and, and make some decent money. Um, but grass seed prices here have, have rebounded over the last couple of years and so, um, that end of our market is doing fairly well at this time. So what percentage of your marketplace is, is made up of traditional, you know, cash crops, you know, corn, soybeans you probably can't grow because altitude, you're probably too high, I would imagine. Um, well, we're actually, we're actually fairly low in altitude. Okay. It depends on what region you're in, but we don't grow soybeans. I mean, there's, as far as I know, there's no soybeans that are grown out here. Uh, very little, um, Corn is grown other than fresh market cannery corn. Uh, there's still not as much as there used to be, but there's still a significant amount that's grown here in the Willamette Valley. It's one of those mini crops. And then you get into the east side, uh, eastern Washington, eastern Oregon, there is some uh, seed corn that's grown there, uh, feeder corn. Uh, but as far as percentage goes, it's a very, very small percentage. Uh, I want to say probably within our crop mix, less than 2%. So... Basically, the bulk of your your business is specialty crops. It is. It is. Yeah, corn and soybeans. That's not even part of our. We don't even. That's not even part of our mix at all. That's We're awesome. completely different from what you see back in the Midwest. Yeah. yeah. So you have you have alfalfa farms and stuff like that out there. Guys that are doing larger. Yes, we do. Alfalfa production. Yeah, we in central Oregon and uh, kind of southern Washington, uh, Walla Walla regions, they do raise um, 
alfalfa for seed up there. They also raise a lot of hay uh, in our central Oregon, uh, like our Madras store, which is just about dead center of, of Oregon on the east side of the Cascades, a very fertile valley that's, uh, that's irrigated uh, through there. They raise a lot of alfalfa. And then you get down into the southern Oregon area down there in Merrill, Klamath Falls. There's a lot of alfalfa that's raised down in that area also. Um, but there is some that's, that's raised specifically for seed. And we see that uh, kind of up in our Walla Walla region. Uh, and those combines that, that harvest those, generally speaking, are walker machines with uh, side hill levelers up to 18% levelers because there is some rolling hills that they grow that, that grass, or excuse me, that seed on up in that area. So another specialty crop with a specialty machine that they need for harvesting. So you guys live in your own little microcosm then, man. You kind of, we do, we do. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's, it's a great place to live. Uh, agriculturally it's, it's extremely diverse. Uh, it's exciting this time of year because they're windrowing, the combines are firing up in the grass seed. There's, there's blueberries are being picked, raspberries, blackberries is all going on right now. Uh, you know, come towards October, they'll be doing hazelnuts and, and wine grapes. Uh, it's, there's always something going on around here. That's, that's a cool, man, that's awesome. Just, just the sheer diversification and, and nothing's ever the same. It's always something different. That's, that's really cool, man. That would be a neat, a neat place to be around. It is. It's, it's, you know, you gotta love this, this business and in this, it's always exciting because there's always something going on uh, because it's so different. And it seems like every year you hear of a new crop. Uh, right now there's some talk about raising industrial hemp. Uh, and I've read, some reports, I've read some reports where, and this isn't the marijuana, even though marijuana is legal in Oregon, this is the industrial hemp for the fiber and the oil. And that could be a new huge specialty crop that's growing here, could be grown here in the Lamont Valley. And I've read a report where in the next 10 years, if it takes off, it could completely change how agricultural or the agricultural mix here in the Willamette Valley again. Yeah, I've, I've read a lot of stuff about industrial hemp and, and not only the medicinal use of the hemp oil and, and the the, the fibers, you know, that you can make clothing with and, and ropes and all that other kind of stuff. I mean, it is, it is kind of endless what you can do with that stuff. So it's, uh, that would be interesting to see how that shakes out. Yeah, it is. And, and there's, uh, we've had several folks come in and they've, um, started buying some equipment, some specialty equipment that we've had to bring in from other companies. Um, and we'll see how it goes. They're these small little plots. They're they're wanting to get started, see how it does. But if it takes off, it could be a game changer once again. Uh, you know, the it's right now they're kind of focusing on the oils for medicinal purposes. But if it takes off, then they'll be using the the oils and of course the fibers. And with that, that's a whole different mix of of type of harvesting equipment for that. Uh, basically combining the the seed for the oil and the same combine actually windrows the 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 stock uh, that gets bailed up for the for the fiber so it's quite a quite a, a system well now we got a pretty good feel for the agricultural climate as far as as the as the crop mix goes and kind of what that looks like and the machinery that's used what do you see happening going through the end of 2017 as far as uh, the overall economy goes in your area? Um, I think it's pretty positive, Casey. Um, 
what we're seeing right now, um, you know, I wish I could answer this question maybe in a little bit more educated way because I'm, I'm really not on the sales side of thing. I just uh, looking on the used equipment side. But uh, from what I hear from our, our salesmen or TMs, uh, things are looking pretty positive. Prices are good for the most part on, on a good variety of our crops. And so there's, everybody's fairly optimistic, you know, for the end of this year, to the end of this year. So take a look across um, all from a macro level, high, high you know, 50,000 foot view of the entire ag marketplace. Um, how do you feel used equipment's going to finish up going through the end of the year? Um, well, that probably I'm not so optimistic for. Um, it seems like we're, we're, we're not really kicking that nut across the field here. Uh, we're increasing our used equipment inventories. We're not diminishing it quite as quickly as we'd like to. Um, new sales have been pretty pretty good this year but with that you know there's trade-ins and and we're struggling with some of our used equipment inventories right now so um, what we're going to do about it I, I, I can't really answer right now uh, we have to look at it as a serious uh, issue that we're going to have to do some some price reducting or have a different strategy for our remarketing on how we're going to get rid of this equipment so you know, overall optimistic for the end of this year for the agricultural market, but I am less than optimistic right now for our used equipment inventories <laughs> and trying to move some of this equipment, uh, especially the niche stuff. Yeah. it's It's been a struggle. Uh, I would say, f from my seat on the bus, when I look at, you know, the macro level uh, across, you still look out there and there are still so many, I was looking at, uh, I was doing some looking at some inventory today and kind of looking at and doing some evaluations and you go out there and you start looking the 2012s the 13s the 14s especially in combines um those model years make up more than half of the used inventory that's out there right now and mm -hmm. you start looking at the 15s the 16s 17s that are, you know there's hardly any 17s really coming in which is kind of a indicative of, of the, the new sales that we've had over the past couple of years. But as long as, uh, as long as that 12, 13, 14 model year stuff is still out there in such, in such high inventory levels, we're going to, we're going to struggle to keep used inventory in a place where guys are going to be able to, to, to trade and not just be completely swallowed up by, by, uh, uh what's what I'm looking for here? Uh, trade differences you know so right but the same hand if you have a if you have a guy that's got a 15 model and he's going to trade it for a 17 model or or even a, a 16 model guy is going to buy a new one or something like that those machines actually in my opinion are going to have a little bit of a higher premium comparatively mm -hmm. to what you're going to see in the other other way around you could you could uh see some pretty substantial trade differences between uh, a, a guy buying a new one, for example, and, and trading in this 2012, you know, combine. There could right. be some pretty big trade differences there that you could see. But um, I'm I'm a little bit like you. I think there's there's some very much, very much caution uh, that you have to take a look at and and be be attentive to. Um, but also, I am I am positive about the agricultural crop side 
economy side kind of going through the end of the year. I think we're seeing, seeing some good things in, in the markets, and we're seeing some good things happen out there. It's how much of that money they want to share with us that they get, you know, to, uh, and not the bank. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, <clears throat> exactly. So, but I, I feel uh, I feel pretty positive, and I think I think we're going to have a pretty good pretty good end of the year. Okay. Well, that's good. You know, you're talking about the 12 and the 13 model year combines. Uh, we're seeing the same thing out here. Uh, we have a, a fairly that's a large portion of our used combine inventory right now, especially in our hillside combines with the levelers on them. Uh, that makes up the majority of it, and um, those are the ones that we're kind of struggling trying to get to move. Um, they were traded at a time when, uh, well, the prices have just dropped so substantially on those pieces of machinery, and, and it's the willingness to uh, get the price down to where it's palatable for a farmer where the trade differential isn't so much. Uh, it's it's going to sting to try to get rid of some of those equipment, that some of that equipment. Yep, and I think that's. I think leasing is going to keep playing a bigger, bigger part in this stuff too, as as we look at it, just because mm -hmm. of the the whole cost of operation end of it. So anyway, mm -hmm. anyway, well, Tom, I really appreciate uh, your time, and I feel like this is one of the I really was looking forward to this man because of the of the machinery that you guys use out there and the crop diversification and and like I said, all of that from Southern California all the way north into. Uh, into Washington up to the Canadian border is such a, it's just, I've always found that whole area to be just absolutely uh, an awesome thing because of, of, of what's grown out there. And, and it's just so much different. It's so different than what I'm used to seeing. So it's a, yeah. it's a pretty cool deal. So um, before we go, do you have any, uh, any words of wisdom you want to pass along to the uh, people out there on, on the interwebs? Well, quit giving your equipment away so cheap, and we'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> we get beat up by farmers all the time. So, <laughs> no, I'm I'm kind of halfway in jest on that. But uh, uh, no, I appreciate the time, Casey, to talk to you. Uh, I was a little nervous about this, but it's been a good conversation, and I hope uh, your listeners find it somewhat educational. And uh, if you ever want to come out this direction, you know, give us a call. We're more than happy to kind of show off what we do. Uh, it's it's kind of fun to do that because people that are used to corn and soybeans are usually flabbergasted by what goes on out here. So come yeah. on out. Oregon is definitely on my uh, to-do list. So, man, I appreciate that. And, Tom, uh, thanks for all you've done for me. And if I can do anything for you, let me know, and I'll see you down the road, buddy. Okay. Sounds great. Thank you, Casey. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Tom. All right. Welcome back. I'm joined once again with Chip Nellinger of Blue Reef Agri-Marketing in Morton, Illinois. Chip and I are going to talk about the markets and some good risk management tips he sees out there for your customers. Chip, glad you're back on the podcast. Yeah, I'm glad to be back, Casey. We um, have a lot different market than uh, the last time we, we talked. It wasn't that long ago, but uh, boy, we've got some opportunities brewing in these markets now, finally. Yeah, it seems like the markets have been moving in a you know fairly positive uh, manner, but there's still a lot of volatility out in the marketplace. And down here, we just got done with wheat harvest. Guys are kind of counting the bins and see what they got in there but the wheat price has been on the move kind of up here over the last couple of weeks and i gotta think the the uh, drought situation in the dakotas and eastern montana has got to be affecting that price yeah that's definitely uh, the the wheat is kind of trading on its own now really for the first time in uh, two and a half to three years we finally have some life in the wheat market 
um, and it has been driven by that that drought up north in the northern plains. But also some questions about um, you know parts of uh, Russia and Ukraine have been very dry, and their production maybe is going to be a touch lower. Portions of uh, Western Europe, Australia has been very dry. Even parts of the Chinese growing areas have been dry. So, you know, it's like feast or famine. You know, it's uh, for three years it's been too much wheat in the world, and and now you're swinging the other way, where low prices uh, kind of took a lot of acres out of production. So we planted fewer acres in the world than we have for a while, and uh, you know, a couple little crop problems here and there, and different spots of the of the world and demand's uh, been pretty good and and that's really changed our marketplace so uh, to me it just goes back to uh, what we talked about before and that's you know you got to have a plan on this thing and that plan has to include what all your costs are um, you know a, a plan on target levels to sell crop how you're going to sell that crop and particularly for for guys in the plains that are just finishing up wheat harvest you know, now you know the kind of one of the final pieces of the puzzle. You you know what the costs were. Now you know what your yields are, and now you really can tell um, where we're at. And and fortunately, the markets rallied. It's given us some opportunities, and and I think even projecting out and having a plan for eighteen. You know, some of those deferred Kansas City wheat contracts have gotten uh, over uh, six dollars now for some of those eighteen um, crop year, and and that is probably not a bad place to start either. But again, you, you know, you kind of have to have a plan and know where you're starting and, and uh, be ready to adjust it once you know yields and as costs change and, you know, as you progress through the, through the marketing year. So <clears throat> I think it's a good example of, uh, you know, just how volatile these markets can be. And, and you're going to get opportunities if you're patient enough, but without a plan, um, it's hard to take advantage of those opportunities. Right. Now, we had guys down here that were, they were selling across the scale at upward in the upper fours, you know. So that's a, that's a big big change from this time last year when they were barely getting four bucks, and sometimes in the in the mid to mid to upper three. So um, definitely a big change in the marketplace, and and it seems like there's just kind of st- I've been reading all kinds of stuff about um, twelve dollar soybeans. You've been reading stuff about that. Well, I tell you, beans, probably of anything right now, in my opinion, beans uh, maybe have the most upside potential. Um, And that's maybe uh, partially because everybody got so bearish um, on beans, uh, speculative commodity funds ended up putting a a record short position on. So they were bearish, thinking prices going lower. Um, We know that South America had a big crop. We know we planted a lot of acres here. But at a certain point, that all got digested in the market, and it kind of became old news. And now, with uh, the weather pattern shaping up, particularly the western Corn Belt, the Dakotas, uh, you know, western Iowa, uh, Nebraska, that seems to kind of be the bullseye right now. And they definitely are on the dry side. Uh, There's a high-pressure ridge that there's a little bit of a question on as to, you know, exactly where that's going to set up. So they're going to be on the warm side. Crop conditions, or at least on beans, are starting to deteriorate. So, um, you know, all the pieces are there now. If we're going to struggle with hot, dry weather in July and August, that, uh, you know, beans could have a tremendous rally ahead of them. But again, this volatility goes back to that plan. I don't want to harp too much on having a plan. You know, I'll give you a perfect example of that. Uh, The bean market here five, six months ago gave guys opportunities to sell it. 
you know, really profitable levels, 10, 20, 10, 30 um, cash price. So guys that were able to do that, then the market broke on, on the big, big crop in South America and big acres here, got down almost to $9 on the November bean contract. Well, if you have a plan and you made those sales north of $10, uh, when you got down there close to 9 bucks, there was some uh, long-term support zones uh, that were, uh, you know, some old lows from back a couple years ago. Gave a perfect opportunity to come in and buy, spend 25 to $0.30 cents on some out-of-the-money bean calls against the sales you had made, and then you're right no matter what happens. You have profitable sales made above 10 bucks. If, if we end up with a big crop and we, and we go to 8 bucks. You wasted a little money on calls, but you got your strong sales uh, in place. If we run into a drought situation and beans go back to 12 bucks, you know what? You, you sold beans early at what was profitable at the time, 1030, but you, now you've got calls bought down near the lows that might have uh, a buck and a half, two dollars worth of profits on to add on to your existing sales, and it's a win-win. So again, you know, it's hard to make those decisions unless you have that plan ahead of time. And that plan doesn't have to be rigid and set in stone. It's something that kind of has to live and breathe through the months and through the growing season and as conditions change. But that's a perfect example of having a plan. And without a plan, now you're back to near 10 bucks. You're kind of handcuffed. It might be getting hot and dry. It gets really emotional, and it's hard to make good, uh, solid decisions in that environment. It's amazing how much the uh, weather is affecting the. I mean, it went from being a super wet, don't know if we're going to get the crop all planted to now we've got the crop planted and it's all dried up. It's just amazing how how much that swing from one side of the pendulum to the other, especially in the Corn Belt. It just, we're kind of going from one end to the other. Yeah, and the, <clears throat> the further east you go, Indiana and Ohio, um, still there's areas there that just, it, it's it's too wet. I mean, you just keep getting rain after rain. Mm-hmm. Um, saw some stuff on Twitter this afternoon about some places in Ohio that got four or five inches of rain. And, uh, but then as you go West, um, you know, that's, they had a, such a great start, but now it's been awful, an awful dry pattern, you know, in portions of, uh, Iowa and Nebraska, obviously the Dakotas. So that's been the fear all along is that that drought that's up in the Montana and Dakotas would kind of slowly expand South and East and kind of engulf more of, of Nebraska and Iowa and, you know, the way it looks today, that's kind of been the trend. There, there's still time. That's the thing about these markets. And the next two or three weeks uh, are going to be really volatile because there's still time in a lot of those areas of Nebraska, Iowa, uh, Minnesota, even probably portions of South Dakota on the corn, the bean crop. If you got some rain here in the next couple of weeks and cool things down, uh, could do a lot of benefit. But, you know, if they're going to fight, you know, 90-plus degree temperatures and very limited rainfall for the next three or four weeks it is really going to start uh, knocking their potential yields back and and then the market will respond and and rally from there so how's the cattle market uh responding to what's happening up in the dakotas well you know i don't there's always when when you get those kind of regional droughts there's always a lot of turmoil um and a lot of cattle that move so you know, you started to hear about uh, producers that are, uh, you know, run out of grass, run out of pasture, um, selling, liquidating um, cow herds. Um, so, but that's more of a logistical thing. Typically, you know, producers from other areas that have had better rains, have better um, pasture conditions, they come in and, and, and they get those. So you see a movement. Um, so far, it hasn't really affected prices much. 
like from our from our futures market, but for sure you're you're running into a lot of logistical issues uh, as those producers up there and ranchers, you know, essentially they're just running out of grass, and it's becoming a pretty uh, dire situation. And you know that, that's the worst thing in the world uh, when when you've got a cow herd, you know, grass and hay are uh, are worth their weight in gold, and you're just running out. It's just been too hot, too dry. So. Uh, unfortunately, it's kind of a bad situation in those far northern plains areas. How's uh, the import ban on U.S. beef into China? How's that? How's that playing into into the, the markets right now? Well, our demand's been really good. Um, you know, prices have have kind of been volatile here. We've we've probably taken I don't know thirty bucks, twenty five, thirty bucks off the cash market uh, in, in uh, cash cattle here in the last three or four weeks. Um, but I don't know that that's fully, some of that's just seasonal and just normal volatile fluctuations, but our de- demand in general, um, for beef and pork and poultry is, is really uh, pretty good. So there's still some issues in the world, particularly China and, and other countries have banned Brazilian beef imports. And, um, you know, I don't know that it's front page news that, you know, we're pumping a bunch of beef into China. But I think that the channels are being cleared, and that's a very good thing. So uh, beef demand still is very, very strong uh, on exports and um, domestically. So, you know, that's a good thing. We've, we've got bigger numbers. We saw, you know, most recently here a week and a half ago uh, a record number uh, on the hogs and pigs report. We saw our most recent cattle on feed numbers be on the high side. But yet the market, uh, because of good demand, uh, it's kind of swallowing up those bigger numbers. So that's kind of what you need. When, when we're pumping out big numbers like that, we better hope that there's a, a big demand base underneath us. And, you know, it doesn't mean you're going to go straight up, but it helps cushion the blows. And, um, you know, I think you're probably pretty fairly priced in, um, in, in cattle right now and could probably see some better things on into to the last half of the year here. So what do you think are some management tips there, guys, could be talking about on, on the livestock end? On the livestock end, well, that's a different situation. I, you know, I think you do need, you still need a plan. Um, you know, you need to have a plan in place on, you know, how you're going to market those, when you're going to market those. Um, you know, cattle producers in general, talking in generalities here, um, have a much better feel for break evens on any group of, of cattle than maybe what uh, grain guys do. And part of that is because you don't know if on your on the grain side, you don't know for sure what your true break even is until you know what your yield is. So that's a variable there. It's a little bit easier to calculate that on the cattle side, but you still need a plan on, you know, how are we going to, what's our target level? Um, you know, you need some, some technical price targets because oftentimes the cattle market trades more technically off of, you know, technical indicators and the charts and, and fund money flow than fundamentals. And, and we've seen that in the past where there's been some times where fundamentally things have been on the bearish side, but yet cattle are rallying and, and, and vice versa. You know, there's been some, uh, some times when uh, fundamentally things are good, but, um, you know, prices set back and go lower and because that's the technical side of it. So I think you need that aspect too. helps you develop some targets. And, and then, you know, how, how are you going to do that is always a question. Is that a short um, futures contract? Is it a short hedge? Is it some sort of a put strategy? Uh, does that mean something more dynamic with some management, um, you know, on the breaks, you're, uh, you know, maybe you, you got hedged from a higher level, but now on this uh, break near some technical support, 
you're you know buying some some calls against those higher price sales. There's lots of ways to to do that. It just has to kind of tailor back to what's my personal uh, risk tolerance, comfort level, and you know how do I want to execute this plan. Okay, so looking forward through uh, the end of the year right now as you kind of see things ramping up here, going back into the fall, coming into fall harvest. Where do you see some strong points and where do you see some points guys should be paying attention to? Well, again, I think on the grain side, um, you know, like we talked earlier, there's there's lots of opportunities here. So um, if we continue to see some hot, dry weather in the, in the western corn belt in the next few weeks, uh, we're going to see some further upside here. So that's going to give us opportunities to – you know, market this 17 crop. And then we're also kind of watching here uh, for some 18 opportunities. I don't think it's too early to be thinking about 18 wheat. Uh, we, we talked about that with higher prices. You're likely going to, um, you know, be susceptible to planting a few more acres than we did this year. And, and I think even, um, you know, if you saw December 18 corn up in the 425 to, to 440 range, that's probably a pretty good place to start on some 18 sales as well. But again, that's that's general. It kind of goes back to what your individual plan is. So I think that um, you know w- there's more volatility. We talked about demand earlier in the livestock. The good thing about uh, corn and, and beans right now is uh, record demand, uh, and that's a good thing. So that means the market's going to be much more um, responsive if there is a little bit of a shortfall, if we're somewhere under trend line yields because it does get a little hot and dry here to finish out the growing season and we end up below trend line, that big demand is going to mean that prices are more responsive to the upside, give us profitable opportunities. But, um, you know, with that, we have to even look a year out. And I think 18 uh, crop year needs to be on the radar screen here, which means we're going to kind of have to start putting a pencil to what the cost structure might be, make some assumptions out there, even though it's early about, you know, what, what will that look like out there next year? And, and if I raise an average yield, you know, what is, what is $10 um, beans next year and, you know, four and a quarter corn next year? What's that look like to me? What's, what's, if I get a chance to start at $6 new crop wheat, how's that look? And that could play into some, some acreage decisions uh, as well. Um, coming into fall and, and winter. So I, I'm, I'm hopeful. I think that uh, things have, have uh, you know, a little bit brighter here than we've seen maybe in the last 18 months, 24 months. Um, but I think that there's going to be more volatility and, you know, guys are going to have to, uh, you know, be ready to make some hard decisions. There's a whole psychological aspect to this too because everybody wants certainty. They like certainty when they make decisions. Um, but unfortunately, in marketing especially, sometimes the – the decisions need to be made um, in the in the most uncertain times, so we kind of have to train our mind to get ready for that. But I I do think the next uh, you know six months here, going into harvest and, and winter, there's going to be some good opportunities here, better opportunities, and we just have to have our pencil sharp and a plan and ready to pull the trigger. Yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to hopefully, and especially in wheat, that this pattern stays the same. That way we can get some of that basis down a little bit and get those uh that carryover stuff sold out as much as we can so we can get that basis at the uh at the elevator you know down a little bit from what it is yeah that's been something that's been difficult last couple years and even even right now basis is pretty historically uh wide in wheat it's it's certainly better than it has been the the last couple years but and that's a slow process i think um we're, we're finally into that you know we're for for better part of three years, there was just a glut of wheat in the world. 
And, you know, the old saying that the cure for low prices is low prices. Well, the, the reason for that is, you know, you increase demand at low prices and you decrease uh, acreage and production. And eventually, you know, you swing the pendulum back the other way, especially if there's a crop problem somewhere. So uh, we're kind of maybe in the early stages of that. So I agree with you, Casey. I think, you know, basis should kind of normalize a little bit. Prices have normalized and maybe even have a little more upside here. And uh, it's just it's nice to see because it was getting pretty bleak there last winter when everything was on multi-year lows and, you know, we kind of had a cash crunch going. And now, at least on the price side, uh, things are looking a lot better than they did in uh, January and February. Yeah, it's, uh, it is nice to see some of the stuff. And, and like you said, the futures contracts have been, you know, the coffee pot talk, you know, guys are are selling some of that stuff early and they're and they're looking at those December and and uh forward month looking contracts now and, and there are some pretty attractive pricing out so, there. Here I am. I'm le- I'm down here in, in, in Andale, Kansas is where I'm at, so I'm looking at our local co op. And right now the basis price is about eighty cents, eighty five cents right now. It looks like cash is around uh depending on where you're at, new crop eighteen, they got some five nineteens out there and looks like uh um over the over the scale at 462 cash right now so seems like that basis has come down quite a bit you know 20 cents 15 cents from where it's been in the past so it looks like this uh wheat harvest is really kind of biting into some of that carryover yeah which is a a good thing and um you know the old the old saying is that the cure for low prices is low prices and and the reason for that is you know as you get low prices it it discourages production it takes um, acres out of production we saw that planted some of the lowest um, you know acreage numbers in the united states we have in many many years and but in the in the same breath as you get to those cheap prices it helps increase demand and so um you know eventually it just takes a while but that starts working and, and demand the demand base builds at a time when you know production is shrinking and now we've got a couple little problems like the northern plains, like portions of Russia and Ukraine, um, in, in, in different parts of the world. And now instead of a big glut of wheat in the world, we're kind of, especially for the high-protein stuff, the world's kind of scrambling, and there's not enough of it now. So slowly but surely, I think that helps uh, basis out. We've already seen, even though it's not great, it's, it's way better than it was three months ago and way better than it was a year ago. And um, hopefully we can kind of get that back to normal that might be more, you know, post-harvest and, and into next year's crop where it could kind of get back to what would be maybe, quote-unquote, uh, more normal than uh, as wide as it has been. And, and you're seeing the same thing in, in, um, in, in corn and in beans, and that's much more regional. That's going to depend on, you know, how, what, what our final crop size is in some of those areas as well. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely a, a better feel than it was this past a winter for sure and i think there's better things to come yet um for weed and, and even corn and beans yeah so what's happening out there politically right now that you're keeping your eye on well you know i i think a couple things um i don't think we've heard the last of of these uh, trade issues with china and mexico i think that those are still something that could potentially um you know be of great interest to our ag markets um, and then there's some talk here about maybe the renewable fuels um, numbers. There's been some talk even yet this week uh, about maybe tweaking those a little bit. Um, it doesn't look like that could be um, too dramatic, but I think the real wild card is, 
you know, we're just kind of early on in these trade negotiations with with China and Mexico. And of course, there's such huge, huge players in our um, corn and, and bean and soy meal market. Really, everything. I mean, Mexico is such a huge buyer of lots of U.S. agricultural products. Obviously, we know China's the biggest buyer of U.S. beans. Um, so those are big, big things that uh, could still hit the hit the market. Uh, maybe not politically, but there's there's kind of you know some topping action in the in the stock market here. And and if you did get into a situation where maybe the stock market was going to put a deeper break in, a, a bigger you know say fifteen twenty percent correction over the next um, several months, um, I think a lot of money could you know go to the sidelines and maybe. Uh, as a diversification, maybe flow into commodities in general, and and the dollar's been pretty weak here, so that's something that could potentially help us out. Uh, and obviously, the the North Korean situation is always a a powder keg and a, and a wild card. So there's always it's it's not always just comes down to what's our crop size and how much rain are we getting, but there's all those other influences, like you said, that uh, you know definitely make a difference and can affect our our ag markets. What do you see happening in the uh, the oil market right now? It seems like there's some uptick there in the price of oil, but it seems somewhat volatile. Yeah, that um, that's a good point too. Um, energy markets and crude oil specifically definitely is a is a player uh, from both a biodiesel and ethanol standpoint, and just as a kind of a general bellwether for for commodities. <clears throat> and and crude oil has been pretty volatile. We spent some time here recently, back north of fifty bucks. Um, we kind of pushed you know, lower down towards 40. Yeah, I think that it's not unheard of that, um, you know, we go back under 40, maybe spend some time in the in the mid to upper 30s. But I don't I don't see any huge moves here. I think in, you know, 38 to 45 is probably a pretty fair price, given, you know, what the assumptions about world economic growth is right now. And, and the real wild cards are, if there, is, is there ever going to be a flare up with something in the Middle East? Um, if there's, you know, if, if we get into a full-scale conflict with um, North Korea, that could be a, a driver of crude oil. So that will be very responsive any, you know, any conflicts in the Middle East or, or Korea. But n- without that, I, I think that we're probably pretty fairly priced here, upper 30s to, to low 40s. But, um, you know, the shock would be always a, a rally, you know, back north of 50 into the into the 60s or 70s. And I don't think you see that without some sort of a big uh, flare-up, um, you know, probably out of the Middle East. Yeah, it seems like OPEC has kind of agreed to pare back their their drilling and their production of oil, but at the same time, the U.S. can now produce quite a bit of oil as well. With the prices the way they are, it seems like they can get that shell oil and, and the other forms yeah. of oil out of the ground, which isn't really helping the situation. It's kind of like the grain markets. Yeah, there's there's kind of a happy medium. You don't, you know, you don't want um, you know eight dollar corn, and you don't really want two dollar corn. If we can just kind of get a nice range where everybody's happy and everybody's profitable, and I, and I think that you know when you did push up north of fifty bucks, um, some of those deferred um, crude oil contracts they trade crude oil you know multiple years out, um, and that allowed some of those producers to you know, to get some sales and hedges off and, and low to mid fifties is, you know, it's not 80, but it, it's, it's making some money for them. And, um, so, but you know, that keeps the, the spigots open and, and the production flowing. 
and and that can lead to those pushes back under 40. So I, I hopefully we're kind of in a range here. I I really don't want to see $20 crude oil, and and I'd rather not see $100 crude oil. But you know, kind of normal swings here in the 35 to 55 range would would probably be um, you know a pretty fair level for the next couple of years. I think. Yep, it's always that's the fun thing about the markets. They're, you never know where they're going to be. Hard to hard to peg them on a day to day basis. Uh, that's for sure. That's, that's that's why I love them. It's always uh, it's always a different piece of the puzzle that uh, you know you're trying to fit in to see what uh, what's going to affect things and where and and why. So uh, definitely something changing every day, and the markets move fast. But uh, that also means there's opportunity out there too. Great. All right, Chip. Well, where's the best place they can get a hold of you at and, and find you on the internet? Well, probably the best place is just call our office, and, and that number is 309-550-7213. And then we've got a website, and um, that's www.blueReefinc.com. All right, well, I'll have all that in the show notes for everybody to take a look at. And before we head out, Chip, you have anything, any words of wisdom you want to pass on to the to the Internet here? Well, I would say this is, a, from a producer standpoint, <clears throat> this is a good time to go back and, and say, hey, let's review our cost structure uh, from this past winter, and let's take a, our best estimate of where we think our yields are right now and kind of, you know, get, uh, I guess, refigure what it would look like if we do get a chance north of $4. Um, you know, is that profitable? What kind of crop insurance do we have? What kind of revenue guarantee? And and different people are different. Um, you know, if you're in the Western Corn Belt and the Dakotas and you just haven't had much rain, it probably says, hey, we crop insurance is covering us. Uh, we don't need to make a lot of sales. If you're maybe in the Eastern Corn Belt and things look okay right now, maybe not record, but probably an, an average uh, to slightly above average crop, um, maybe that means north of $4 corn and north of $10 beans, we're making some sales because it's profitable. But I think it's a good time to kind of recalibrate, refigure, and, and kind of, you know, re-up the, what the plan should be over the next, um, you know, few months here because we're finally getting some opportunities and some volatility in the market. And, um, you know, the more informed you are about your costs and what's profitable and, and, and the better plan you have and the more time you put into having a plan, the less emotional it'll be and the better decisions you'll make. So I think we're at that uh, right on that fence where uh, here the next uh, few weeks it could really get interesting based on uh, what the forecast does. Well, good deal, man. Well, Chip, thanks for being on my podcast, and uh, I look forward to the next time we talk. You bet. I always enjoy it. All right. Thanks, Chip. That's going to do it for this edition of the Moving Iron Podcast. I'd like to thank Tom Wall of Pape Machinery and Chip Nellinger of Blue Reef Agri-Marketing for being my guests on this episode. Remember, if you want to continue any of these conversations, you can hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can send me an email at movingironpodcast at movingironpodcast.com. This podcast can be found on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and SoundCloud. So until next time, let's go move some iron. This is Casey Seymour, out.